I'm excited. I hope you guys are excited. We're not only excited, but we're eager to get into our new home and hub on Patterson Avenue. I need to say this every time we talk about the building, but it is a, it is not the end. It is a means to a greater end, deeper discipleship and wider mission. And if you're new, or maybe you've just not been paying attention, I want to tell you kind of the story of how did we get there? Like, how did we get to a 52,000 square foot facility on 13 acres in downtown? Well, what happened is we got into this building in November of 2018. And within one year, we were out of space, even though we added more services and morning services and more seating. And it was like, oops, you know, here we are. We're completely out of space. And so actually it was at the end of 2019, this was BC, before COVID, okay? Before COVID, you guys remember those days, right? Um, Well, we ended up looking for a facility and we didn't end up finding anything that was gonna be a fit. And and then of course COVID happens. And then January of 2021, okay? So we're gonna be coming up, I guess, on three years in January. January of 2021, we found the uh, 13 acres downtown. At the end of 2021, if you were here and you're part of the Ford Initiative, you gave to make it a reality. And then 2022 was really about designing the building and starting the work. And then last August, so 13 months ago, we started working on that property and we're hoping and praying and planning to be in there by Christmas Eve. And so one of the things we've been saying this whole time is we always knew that there was two things that we were going to have to prepare to get into this facility. First, we're gonna have to prepare the property and that's obvious and that takes a long time. But secondly, and more importantly, we were going to have to prepare the people, us, to get in this property. And, and I didn't say this the first three weeks, but the one initiative that we're doing, uh, do you guys remember this? At the beginning of the year, I don't expect many of you remember this, but we gave you, uh, at the first sermon of the year, we gave you a ministry plan for the year. And we said, actually, here's where we're going, and here's all the sermons, and here's all the series, and here's all the special dates, okay? Well, what wasn't on the ministry plan was this one initiative. It wasn't on the plan. We actually were supposed to be in the book of Hebrews, but about three months ago, me, but we, as, a, as kind of a leadership team, decided, man, I don't think the book of Hebrews, we love it, we'll preach through it at some point, is the best thing to take us into this building. We need a focused time to look at the first church, the book of Acts, because the church at its birth is the church at its best, and to really take a time saying, what does it look like for us to reach one person who's far from God, close to us, or one, that's why we're in this series. But then there's like one other thing, because we've been trying to ask the question, genuinely, like maybe you'd ask this question with us, like why has God blessed our church? And there, like the naive answer to that is, well, I don't know. We're just being blessed. I, I guess God loves us more than others. It's like, that's not the right answer. So you might want to ask, what is God blessing? And I don't know all the answers to that, but I know one of the answers to that is when we came here, we had a launch team. 30 moved and 70 met. And so we had 100 people. And that launch team defined the first two years of our church. People say, how did you launch so large? And how did you do two services? And how did you have the largest launch in the history of the Summit Network? And the answer is God blessed our launch team because there was 100 people who said they were gonna be all in with their time, talent, treasure. So then fast forward, it's November of 2017 and we can't fit in Goler anymore. We're about 400 people and we're gonna, we found this facility and we said, hey guys, we used to be 100, now we're 400. We used to be launch team 1.0. Can you guys be launch team 2.0? And so if you were at Goler, okay, or let me say it this way, if you weren't at Goler, and you weren't a part of Launch Team 2.0, you right now are sitting in the seats of the sacrifice of Launch Team 2.0. And so then we thought, well, what if we just did it again? Last weekend we had not 400 or 100, we had 2,300 people on our campus last weekend. So we thought, by the way guys, that's close to 1% of the population of Winston-Salem. And so we thought, what would it look like if everybody at Two Cities Church was on Launch Team 3.0? Are you guys excited? We have a slide. Here's what this means. Uh, look, most of, you are, you, you're, most of you are on launch team 3.0 and you don't even know it, okay? <laughs> because if you give and if you serve and if you pray and if you connect and if you invite and if you're all in, then you're on launch team 3.0, okay? And we're just naming it, we're just calling it something. 
For others of you, you need to get in. We just had 85 people go to the Weekender. Okay, that's how you enter the launch team. We, uh, you know, there's going to be another Weekender. You'll hear the dates for October, okay? Uh, for others of you, you fell off the serving train during COVID or something, or you had a kid. We know how that works. Or you fell out of group because it's hard, okay? And you need to get back in group and on a team. Whatever, wherever you are, we're going to give you a gift today. Do you see this? You've been asking for some swag, and you're finally getting it. Okay. This is, it's this, yeah, you can't get that on Amazon. You'll, you'll see it when you go outside. There's going to be a bunch of these mugs as soon as you leave. If you're saying, I'm all in with my time, talent, treasure, or I'm taking the next step to be all in with my time, talent, treasure, we want you to just grab one of those, and when you drink your coffee or if you drink tea, whatever, you know, <laughs> we want you to just take, a time, take some time in the morning or wherever afternoon, and we want you to pray for our church. And let's start by praying together. Lord, we love our church. We love the high commitment culture that may be unique for churches, but it's not unique for the New Testament. It's not unique to the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus. It wasn't unique to the people of Israel that um, the statement, Jesus Christ is my Lord, and, and the following statements, therefore God is my Father and the church is my family, are, are statements of high commitment. And would you call all of us up to more generosity, more community, more mission, and uh, more focus on Christ and the gospel? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know this, but everything, and I really do mean everything, stands or falls on leadership. I know that may sound dramatic, but wait till you see a nation fail and they're looking for a new prime minister or a new president. What happens when a sports team's failing? They don't get rid of all the players. They find a new coach. And what happens when a business is failing? I mean, they don't fire all the employees. They look for a new CEO. Well, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 13, we're going to get to meet the leaders of the first missional church in the Bible. We're going to get to meet the leaders of the first sending church in the Bible. You know it as, and the New Testament knows it as, the church at Antioch. See, in chapter 13, there's a division in the book of Acts. <clears throat> Almost all the commentators notice this, that chapters 1 through 12 is about the church in Jerusalem. From now on, Acts chapter 13 is about the church moving into the Roman Empire and having a sending mentality for the rest of time. And this is such an important sermon. Why would we talk about this in the One Initiative? <clears throat> Well, one of the answers is it's the next thing that comes up in our Bible, so that's helpful. The other reason is we, we might say this. Well, you know, we're not going to talk. We'll talk a little bit at the end of how to reach your one, okay? We've talked about that for three weeks straight. What we're doing today is we're talking about what is the type of church God blesses. And we're also asking the question, like, how do we make sure that we are a missional church long after the one initiative's over? Guys, because we can't do the, you know, we can't do a 78-week series in the, in the one initiative. Could you imagine? We're in week 75. Have you reached your one yet? You know, we're not doing it. But I want to talk about this. Well, let's go to the text. I want you to first see this. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Then it'll set up our time together. Now there was, or there were, I'm sorry, in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. So there's leadership. We get five guys. Barnabas, why is he named first? Because he's the first among equals. He's the leader. He recruited the other ones. And he was the spiritual dad to the church in a time of need. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So a, a interesting group of guys that have nothing in common except Jesus, okay? And that's what the church is. While they were worshiping, look here, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. We'll talk about more than that, but we'll talk about mostly those three verses tonight. Guys, this is a key moment in a young church's life. They're probably younger than us. They're a few years old. And they decide, and this is what we're deciding today. We've decided this a long time ago, but I want you to hopefully decide it with us and know about this, okay? We believe here that mission 
has to always be a top priority for our church. Now, I don't know a lot of things about a lot of things, but I know the church world, and I will tell you what happens in the church world. Churches have mission drift, and churches wake up one day, and they really care about collecting people, not commissioning them, because it's what gets rewarded. What gets rewarded in the church world are the three Bs, buildings, budgets, and butts, okay? That's it. And I'm serious, and it's how big is your church, and how many campuses, or how big is your building, and it's how many staff do you have, and how big is your budget? And here's what happens. If a church does not value sending and mission, and I'm using those interchangeably, as one of the highest priorities in the church, it becomes a spiritually obese church. Have you ever been to those churches? It's where all the Christians in those churches, they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat of God's word, but they never exercise, okay? And I will tell you another thing that happens in these churches, because I've been in these churches. They become very idealistic of what the church is and what the church should do. And they become very cynical and very critical of, all, of well, of the world and of all other churches. And so here's, what we're, here's the big idea for today. From, well, it's gonna rise right out of scripture. We have to have a ministry, sorry, a missionary mindset as a church, not a monastery mindset or a maintenance mindset. So the monastery mindset, and this is actually very, very common when things are not going well in culture. It's like, well, build the walls bigger, everybody inside. And this is where we can worship. And this is where you can pray. And this is where your kids can go to do kids ministry. And this is where your students will be ministered to. And this is where you can be in a Bible study or be in a community group. And we're not against any of that, obviously. But the monastery mindset kind of says, okay, well, this is all about me and what I can get out of it. Guys, we have to, what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to bring the entire world to the Christian faith and to spiritual maturity. I'm a little overwhelmed by it. That's the mission of the church, to bring the entire world to the Christian faith and to spiritual maturity in Christ-likeness. And so here's what this means. This means that, what does that mean? This means that, yes, we need to have missional leaders. We see that but the church needs to be made up of missional people. And what I wanna do with the time left is I just wanna show you four things from this first church that decides, guys, we're gonna choose sending over safety. We're gonna choose going over staying. And uh, let me give you those four. I'll show you the first one. Go with me to verse two. Verse two, we're introduced to the first one. While they were, if you underline your Bible, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I've called them. What is the first mark of a missional church? A missional church is a worshiping church. You're gonna get, I hope, tired of me saying this, because I just, one of the things we're getting very, very clear on is what, who are we as a church? Like, I want you to be able to, you know, put it on a bumper sticker, you know, say, say, put it on a t-shirt, like, say it in a sentence. What are we doing? We make and mobilize disciples in an environment of prayer and worship. That's it. That's why our community group exists. That's why our kids' ministry exists. That's what we do. We make disciples. We mobilize them. We get them ready to live as Christians in the world. And we do all that in an environment of prayer and worship. So guys, worship is so important. You know, I'm wondering, I mean that you guys saw the, obviously the video that we just shot. I was walking around this worship center, okay? And it's massive. It really is. It's, it's, a, it's a huge worship center. And it's gonna feel small and we're doing the stadium. You're gonna love it. You're, you're gonna get in there and go, Kyle, it only seats 800. I'm like, no, it actually seats 1300. You know that, okay? It's gonna feel great. You're gonna love it. But I had to ask myself, you know, I, I, and I believe in what we're doing, but I'm like, why are we building such a massive, fairly expensive building right now? And the answer is because worship is unbelievably important and the seating capacity 
is the precursor to the sending capacity. We believe more that our we believe that our sending capacity is more important than our seating capacity. But if we don't have a seat for a person, then we don't have a place for a person. If we don't have a place for a person, we can't disciple that person. If we can't disciple that person, they're never going to live sent or leave and be sent. So we have to talk about worship. Why are we building this big room in the middle of downtown? Because worship is central. And part of worship is when we gather together. I want you to understand what worship is. You can't worship if you don't know what worship is. If for some reason you think worship is a style of music, which some people think, then your worship is not going to be very deep. It's going to be shallow. If you think, um, if, if you describe the worship service as many Christians do, as, hey, we sang some, we did some worship, you know, and then there was a sermon, and then there were some baptisms, and we took communion, um, and then we did some more worship. Then we prayed for a little bit. Uh, and then we got up and we heard a video testimony of what God was doing in someone's life, you know. And then we, we sang another worship song, we worshiped, you know. And, and then the, the pastor got up there and he sent us out and told us to be on mission and called us to be generous. It's like, no, all of that was worship. Worship is a way of life. Here's what worship is. Worship is when all of me responds appropriately to all that God has said. So what we're trying to do here, and part of what I'm just, I'm just trying to tell you, so maybe you're like, oh, that's why you guys are doing these things. Okay, okay. we are trying to create a response culture in our church, because that's what worship is. A synonym for worship would be, I respond. You know, it's like, are you worshiping God? Are you responding positively to what he said? There, there are really four ways that you build a worship environment, okay? I'll give you them. The first is that you obey. There's, there's four types of response, and hopefully you want to do that. Like, that's the sign of a Christian. You read the Bible, and it says, be generous, and you're like, I want to be generous. It says, repent of a sin, and you're like, I want to get rid of this. I want this out of my life. It says pray, you say, I want to pray, you know. It says be reconciled and forgive, and you say, I want to be reconciled and forgive. It says share the gospel with your friend, and you go, I'm trying. Seriously, like the the first response of worship is obedience. We often think adoration. Yes, also obedience. So the first is you obey, the second is you pray. How do you respond? When you read your Bible, you hopefully are responding in prayer. God speaks to you through the word, and then you respond in prayer. And you, I mean, if you want to change your devotional life immediately, just talk to God about what you're reading and ask him what he'd like you to do with it. It's like, you know, it's a little scary. We obey, we pray, so those rhyme, that's easy to remember, right? And then these two rhyme, we sing and we bring. So singing is very, very important. Like what we do here is not Christian karaoke, if you didn't know that. Uh, singing is not the warm-up for the sermon. Singing is not so that you can come in late after you dropped your kids off late. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, Singing is when all of God's people sing the exact same words at the exact same time to the exact same God. It's very, very special. And, you know, there's a couple different things. Uh, well, let me go to bring first. So there's sing and then there's bring. And bring is, is then I respond. Like, why does almost every church for all of human history end with an offering? It's like, it's just, like, why? It's like, it's part of the response You know, it's like, okay, God, like you have changed my life. You have ministered to me and my family. I have responded to the word of God. I'm responding to it and is committing to obey, committing to pray. I'm singing and now I'm bringing, okay? Now, there's one other thing that if you want to deepen your worship, you know, and and here's here's the way you do it. As deep as possible, you connect to the life of the local church. It doesn't have to be here. It can be some other church, okay? I don't mean this in some self-serving way, but like, if you came here and you were like, I'm going to sing these songs passionately. I'm going to learn them. I'm going to figure out what the names of these are, and I'm going to listen to them on Spotify or iTunes this week. I'm going to learn these songs so next time I know them even better to sing them with God's people. If every time we said, guys, and let's pray, and you said, all right, I'm praying. Like, I'm praying to God with you on this. 
It, it, what if every series that we were in, you thought, man, this is exactly what God has for me in this season? Like, okay, I guess we're all going to grow in sharing our faith right now. Or, you know, a year and a half ago, we were all, almost two years ago now, we were all in the Song of Solomon. It was like, and I remember I said to the whole church, it's like, here's what this means. God wants to work on your romantic relationships. Like, that's what we're doing. The whole church is doing this. It means you prioritize your community group. It's, so, and, and here's why. The Bible says that when you're a Christian, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's amazing. It means you're immersed. It means that you, you get the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt with the Holy Spirit when you become a believer. There's one baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches many fillings. That's easy. One baptism, many fillings. There's many ways to be filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, Martin Lloyd-Jones said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, being filled with the Holy Spirit is like God's your father and you're a son. Think of a father-son illustration. He said, imagine a father's walking with a son holding his son's hand. And his son knows that his dad loves him. He said, being filled with the Holy Spirit is when the dad picks the kid up, looks him in the eye, says, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad you're my son. Gives him a kiss, hugs him, gives him a little nookie, puts him back down. Now, is the kid any more loved before the dad did that? No. Does the kid feel a lot more loved after his dad did that? Yes. That's probably the best illustration for what it's like, what it feels like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you will come into, most people do not come into church filled with the Holy Spirit. They're anxious, stressed, depressed. They're fighting with their spouse. They feel guilty for what they did last night or this week. But I promise you, because I, I can relate to this, I have many times come to two cities not filled with the Holy Spirit. But I have never engaged my heart in a service and left not being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is a unique opportunity for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's the other thing, one last thing about worship together. We need to see each other worship. Like, I, you know, we I genuinely, like kids need to see their parents worship the Lord. Spouses need to see their husband and their wife worship the Lord. And it is so encouraging because, you know, I have a little bit more understanding than the average person of what's going on in people's lives in our church because I just hear things. And it means so much to me when somebody's going, when somebody just lost somebody, when somebody's going through a health crisis, when someone's going through a financial crisis, when someone's going through a relational crisis, and you watch them worship the Lord in the wilderness, it is powerful. So the first thing that we have to be, if we're going to be a worshiping church is, or a missional church is we have to be passionate worshipers. And you can't just do it here. You gotta do it every day throughout the week. The second thing, or um, the second component, sorry, of worship is in verse three. Look here. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So a component of worship is also fasting, which I haven't talked about this in a long time. But fasting, and whenever I say fasting, I know what people think. Like, oh, and it's bathing suit season, so that might be a good, good idea. Yeah. This has nothing to do with weight loss. This has nothing to do with your intermittent fasting where you don't eat for 16 or 18 hours to increase your metabolism or whatever you guys do, okay? Um, this, here's, here's what fasting is. It literally, this is the definition. I cease from food for a spiritual purpose. And you can only fast food. Biblically speaking, I know people go, I'm fasting Netflix. You know, I, I'm fasting social media. It's like, that's not fasting biblically. That is what Hebrews 12 says, taking off the things which hinder and the sin which so easily entangles so that I can better run my race. That's great, that's not fasting. Fasting is I cease from food for a spiritual purpose because food has a huge control over our lives. And oftentimes we don't even know what's going on in our lives or how we're really feeling because we just cover it with food, right? So you had a bad day at work, and what do you think? Pepperoni pizza and bluebell ice cream for me tonight. 
And all of a sudden, you're like, my day is a lot better, and you never dealt with anything, right? That's why some of you get hangry, you know, if you don't eat. Well, here's the other interesting thing. Why did they fast? They fasted. Do you see that? They're, they're, they don't know what to do. They're trying to figure out what's next for them as a young church. So it says they fast for direction. I would imagine in a room this size, some of you need direction, and you need to fast. Like, you know, you're like, do, do, are we going to have another kid or not? It's like, well, that would be something to fast about. Should I quit my job or not? That would be something to fast about. Is this guy the right guy for me to date? Do I need to get in a romantic relationship? Do I need to get out of some romantic relationship? Well, that would be something that you would fast about. The other interesting thing about this fast is this fast is a corporate fast. So sometimes people think fasting is only individual because they only know the verses where Jesus says, hey, when you fast, you know, put on deodorant, put on cologne and take a shower and smile and don't walk and tell everyone, I'm fasting today. It's really hard. He says, no, don't do any of that. Like be joyful, be yourself, be secret. And your father who's in secret will reward you. That's an individual fast. You might be struggling with some sin. You just say, I'm fasting about this. A corporate fast is different. A corporate fast is, is sometimes where mom and dad says, hey guys, we don't know what to do as a family. A husband and wife says, hey, we're heading toward retirement and we have no idea what to do. What if the, what if the two of us fasted? A corporate fast is when a community group goes, I don't know what's happened in our community group over the last six months, but something is not right. And I, I guys, would you be open to fasting breakfast and lunch this week? Just, just on Monday? We gotta get some clarity and some direction. We'll use that time to, to seek the Lord, to journal, to pray. Sometimes there are moments where the church or a community group or a family needs to fast. The, the whole point is fa- fasting is like it's the gas pedal in your spiritual life. It is a gas pedal. I don't know if God speaks louder when we fast or we can just more clearly hear him. But if we're going to be a missional church long-term, we have to be committed to being a worshiping church, particularly worship with fasting. Secondly, a missional church is not just a worshiping church. A missional church is a spirit-filled church. Look, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, there you go, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Look at this, second time he's mentioned. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So guys, we have to understand the person of the Holy Spirit. We, I mean, if you're a Christian, like a found, there's not that many, like major foundational beliefs, but the Trinity is one of them, okay? That we, our worship is triune. And most people's functional Trinity is Father, Son, Holy Bible. Or they, they think about, they're like, all right, I know, I, let me explain the Trinity. The Father is the mean one. Jesus is the nice one. The Spirit is the weird one. That's what people think. They don't say that out loud, right? And we have no idea how the Holy Spirit is working in our life. We talk a lot about having a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm fine with that. That phrase is not in the Bible, but I understand what people mean, and I think it's helpful in general. I think it's probably more practically helpful and more faithful to Scripture to talk about having a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. See, what the Holy Spirit, a lot of people talk about the book of Acts as it's literally the long title for the book of Acts. It's called Acts. Some people say it should be called the Acts of the Apostles. Others think it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the church. See, the Father, here's here's a, a theology of sending. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit sends the church, okay? And so what, what the Holy Spirit is, who the Holy Spirit is, is he is the humble, shy member of the Trinity who loves to bring attention to Jesus. So I'm always very nervous about the church that is obsessed with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, when he shows up, you don't think about the Holy Spirit. 
You're thinking about you're convicted about your sin. You're thinking about your lost friends and family. You're thinking about the cross of Christ. You're thinking about how awesome Jesus is. See, guys, what we're trying to have here is a spirit-led church, not a synthetic church. Okay, I know enough pastors to know that a lot of pastors are trying to do synthetic ministry. It's like, okay, what's, get me the Jim Collins book, please. I need all the business books on how to run an organization, please. And then I need to look around, I need to ask, what's cool? What are other churches doing? What seems to be working? Instead of saying, where is the Holy Spirit, according to his word, uniquely leading our church to right now? That's a lot harder to figure out. It, revol- it, it requires not just prayer, or not just planning, but prayer, not just strategizing, but sensitivity to the Spirit. See, if you look at verse 2, it says that the Holy Spirit says, set Barnabas and Paul aside. How does he say that? Well, we don't know. We're not particularly told. Does a prophet get up and say this? Do they, are they reading the Old Testament, and they see that Abraham was sent to be a blessing to all the world, and then they think about that? We don't know. Listen, the Holy Spirit can speak to us in many different ways. Now, the primary way the Holy Spirit speaks to us is by first inspiring the Bible, and then what's called illuminating it, making it real to us. God's given us an objective word and a subjective spirit, and when the two come together, it's very, very powerful. So you can think about, you know, you think about the verse that says, um, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And, you know, I can pick up on the women too, but I'll pick on the guys for a second. But it's just like, you you guys can read that verse, and they're like, okay, my love should be sacrificial. And then the Holy Spirit says, and this is what this means for you. This means that your weekends need to stop being so selfish. Like, oh, that was a little personal. No, this this means that you need to stop about five of your seven goofy hobbies. It's like, oh my. This means you need to travel half the amount of time that you travel. What? It's like this is getting real. Yes. That's how that's how Christianity is. Christianity is very real. The personal Holy Spirit speaks to your heart if you're born again and says, This is how the word applies to you. That's not the only way. It's the primary way God speaks. God can speak to you through circumstances. God can speak to you through open doors and opportunities. God can speak to you through relationships. What we see here is if you look at verses 3 and 4, I want you to see something interesting. In verses 3 it says, then after fasting, by the way that's mentioned twice, and praying, they, who's they? That's the church, right? They laid their hands on them and sent them off. So verse 3 says the church sent them off. Look here. Verse four, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So were they sent by the church or were they sent by the Holy Spirit? And you know the answer, yes. This is, I wanna give us language for this. We believe deeply here in an internal calling and an external calling. Like that's, that's the sweet spot. The sweet spot is when you have an internal calling, something that you believe God wants you to do, and then you have an external calling, which isn't your grandma saying you, she think you'd be good at it, okay? It's, the, it's people who genuinely know you in your life, especially church leaders, who say, I see that in you. See, here's the, the internal calling is an, it's an overwhelming desire for the work. I mean, that's, you know, I can only give you my own, so that's exactly what I have with teaching and preaching. It's an overwhelming desire for the work. Every once in a while, my wife, it's on the weekend, and I'm like reading a commentary, and she's like, are you working right now? I'm like, in my labor, I find my leisure, okay? <laughs> it's, I have an overwhelming desire for the work. What you want, so we don't want, it's not attractive, and it's not helpful to have willing victims doing things for God. I'll serve in the kids' ministry if I have to. 
if I guess if no one else will host this group, I will. You know, if, if he, he said they need more community group leaders, and so I'll, you know, I'll do it. And then that God, I don't think God is God is not honored, and people are not helped. Um, one of the greatest things that you can say to people is, I get to do this, and it's an unbelievable pleasure and joy, and I am so humbled to be here, and I am, I'm fully satisfied in God and fully submitted to his will for my life, and this is what I want to do. And, and here's your, your internal calling is usually a mixture of three things. Your ability, okay, that makes sense. You know, God's not going to call you to something you're horrible at. Your ability, um, oh, your desire, that's the overwhelming desire for the work. And then normally, eventually, God opens up an opportunity. That's the sweet spot. A lot of people are frustrated because they have desire and they have ability. And God, it seems, has not yet opened up the opportunity. And then the church comes along just as the external affirmation. Right? It's not all, if it's all church, it's like institutionalism and bureaucracy and systems and structures and it's not healthy and helpful. If it's only the church, it's like weird individualism where I just do whatever I feel like even if I'm not good at, and good at it and it's not helpful. We don't need either of those. The church comes alongside and says, are you godly, are you gifted, and do we see grace on your life? It's not just godly and gifted. That's what people think, right? It's like, is he godly, you know, is she godly? Do they have this, check, check, check. Are they gifted? Oh, they can teach, or they can, okay, they know the Bible, okay, they know how to evangelize, check, check, check. It's not just godly gifted, it's godly gifted, unique grace on their life in this area. This is why Charles Spurgeon, before he'd bring a pastor on his staff, the pastor had to lead somebody to Christ. He looked at it as the seal of their ministry. Ah, I see that God uses you uniquely in the life of other people. Come on. So we have to have a spirit-filled church. We have to have a worshiping church. And then here's the third thing. A missional church is willing to send their best. So we worship, we're spirit-filled, and we're open-handed. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, there's the worship, the Holy Spirit said, that's the Spirit-led, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So when you have a sending church, your best people always leave when you have a sending culture. I mean, if you think of the two guys of the five guys that you're like, Lord, please, not them, not them, not them. I mean, let's just, can we keep Lucius? I mean, he's just an okay teacher, you know? The guy, not, not, not the guy, not the dad of the church. No, 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 he can't leave. And not Paul. Do you hear this guy's testimony? This guy's an incredible Bible teacher. It's like, okay, they send their best. Here's what happens. I've seen this because I've been parts of church like this. Whenever you start planning campuses, whenever you start planning churches, whenever you start sending more and more missionaries, whenever you start new endeavors, your best people always leave. There's some people in this church we wish would leave, okay? They, they never leave. They never will leave. But here's the truth. Your, your most generous givers go because they get it. Generosity is part of their life and they end up going to help. They're like, well, we could, we got extra time, we got extra money, we'll go. Your most missional people leave because they're like, what an opportunity. I know it's gonna be hard, but, uh, but I'm in. Your, your greatest spiritual leaders leave. They're like, well, I've got all these spiritual gifts. I, I mean, there, there's plenty of people using them here. I'm gonna go use them there. And so here's another kind of dirty secret of churches. Churches are not very missional and we don't have ascending culture in most churches because it's unbelievably expensive. Uh, it's expensive financially, first of all. It's expensive um, emotionally. It's expensive relationally. And so, but this is, I, that's why you have to have a deep conviction from Scripture. What, interestingly, our church has a deep conviction from Scripture, that's helpful, and personal experience in this. And here's what I mean by that. 
Guys, we're, we're the product of a generous sending church. Many of you know this, but some of you don't. We came out of a church called the Summit Church in Raleigh Durham with Pastor J.D. Greer. I want to just honor that church, okay? Because here's what happened. He, I was young, I was like 31 years old. He let me get on the stage in front of 10,000 people and he's like, you guys should all go to Winston-Salem. He said that to 10,000 people. In fact, I want you to go. If you can go, you should go, okay? And then he said, here's another thing. And if you go with Kyle and go to Two Cities Church and you're gonna be part of his launch team, I don't want you to give to the summit anymore. What? Yeah, immediately, like immediately stop giving to the summit and, and he has a 501c3 and they need the money more than we do and we want you to start giving. It's like, who does that? And so we, we're just in a line, guys. We're not the first, it's just now our turn. We're just, we're just in a line of doing this. Like we have been blessed to be a blessing. And so here, here's what's going to happen, guys, in this new building. I mean, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I do work for a nonprofit. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, that's a terrible, terrible joke. Um, but anyway, I, um, I don't know what's going to happen, okay? But here's what I think is going to happen in this new building. And I say this, this is, I'm, this is genuine. Hopefully you hear this charitably and with humility because this is what we think is going to happen and what all of our mentors have told us is going to happen, that we're going to get in this building and we are going to be out of space very soon, much sooner than any of us are expecting it, okay? Um, probably 12 months, 24 months at the most, we will be packed, it will feel like this. And at that point, what we're gonna have to ask the question, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna, you know, are we gonna do six flags, you know, over Jesus, you know, Two Cities Church, like we're, we're running, you know, 27 services, seven days, no, we're not doing that. So then you have to go, well, are we building a bigger building? No, we're not doing that. And then are we putting a balcony? No, no, we're not doing that. And so then you have to start asking genuine questions like, well, what do you do then? And one option is you could do nothing. We don't feel good about that. And so we're already putting some plans in place and some ideas, but we're gonna get to the point where we are going to have to, by hopefully conviction and necessity, be a sending missional church. Now we're doing that, but here's, here's the difference. We have to give not just resources. We have to not just send resources, we have to start sending people. We wanna be a sending, here's the words, sending, supporting, shepherding church. So here's what a sending church is. Now, we, we already send money, okay, that's great, uh, genuinely. And it's, we give away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, locally, nationally, globally, really great. There's a whole nother level when you start sending people that are not coming back to your church. They're moving, they're leaving. And guys, I'm telling you, I think, again, I don't know this for sure. I think we're like three years away from doing this. So this is like, just remember I said this. I think what's gonna happen is in two or three years, I'm gonna be getting on, thank God, that new stage, not this stage, okay? The new stage. And we're, this isn't, I'm, I'm making up a place, okay? But it's gonna be something like this. We're gonna say, hey guys, I want you to meet Tim and his wife. Come on, get up here, guys. And they're gonna come up here and you're gonna know them because they're a part of our church. They're probably been on our staff. And we're gonna say something like this, guys. Hey, listen, Tim, and his wife, it's really awesome. God has called them, when we affirm it, God has called them to plant a church in Boone, North Carolina. And uh, man, he's scared, but really excited. And uh, it's gonna be very, very hard. But we, we really think we could plant an autonomous church, a brother of Two Cities Church. It'll have its own name, its own leadership, all that. We're gonna plant that in Boone. But guys, for this to be successful, we're going to need 50 to 100 of you to move. And we, we just want the culture where everyone's going, okay, because here's what happened, guys. We had 30 people move with us and two, at least two of the couples that moved with us, I interviewed each couple that moved with us. 
And two of the couples from the song, it may have been more than this, but two that I can remember, they said, you know, I said, why are you going to come on this church plant? Why are you going to come to Winston-Salem? And they said this to me. They said, well, when you're at the summit, you're just sitting there and you're just asking the question, Lord, where do you want me to go next? And so we always, imagine saying this as a couple, we always knew that we were going to leave the summit church. That's what they said. We always knew it. We were just wanting to know what was going to be the right opportunity and the right church plant for us to go with. I was like, whoa. We're just the beneficiaries of a culture where people chose and they had their mindset of, I'm sending. And guys, because here's what's going to happen. Then after we do the boon thing, then we're going to go, then a year or two later, we're just going to go, hey guys, here's this other couple. Isn't this, aren't they amazing? Guys, they're going to be heading to Greenville, South Carolina. And they got three young kids. And they're, they're, gonna, they're taking risks. And we need 50 to 100 of you, if God would put it on your heart to go with them. And here's the great thing. We think because of COVID, it's like one of the only silver linings of COVID, is that people are more mobile and people can keep their job and work from anywhere. So where we're headed as a church, this is more of like foreshadowing, is we're heading to the place where we're really going to, we want you to wrestle now like two years, like where could we go? What could we be a part of? We also wanna be a, not just a sending church, a supporting church. A supporting church is when you hold the rope when people leave and you say, I'm, not, I'm gonna continue to pray for you. And we're gonna continue to give financially because we know that most churches fail in the first three years because they're not self-sustaining. And then we're gonna be a shepherding church, okay? And, and, and that's a little different. A shepherding church says we care about those who leave because they were part of our church family. So we're checking in on them, especially the pastor and his wife. Because we know when you go out on mission, then you know, Satan puts a bullseye on your back and we know that your marriage is gonna be hard because it's very hard to plant a church. And we know the pastor's gonna have sin struggles and not know who to talk, about, talk to, we're gonna help them, you know? And, and we know it's gonna be difficult financially and we're gonna help them. And so guys, that, that's where we're headed. Now, there's one other thing about sending our best that we have to understand. We have to understand these two words found in verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart. Those are the two words. That's the word calling. So that's the idea of calling, that you, you are set apart from something. This is what happens when you become a Christian. I'm set apart from the world and I'm set apart to Christ. But then that's what happens when you become a Christian, but there's a calling on your life, okay? I wanna talk about calling for just a minute, about something I've never talked about before. There's two elements of calling. One of them I've talked about before and I'll mention it first. The other I've never talked about. The first element of calling, you're gonna be familiar with this. This is like when, when pastors say, and this is really popular today to go, hey, everybody, and this is true, everybody here is called to be a part of the mission of God, right where you are, where you live, learn, work, and play. Mom with your three kids, yes, you, at your home tonight, you're on mission, right? And we say something like, uh, mission isn't where you are, it's who you are. And so, you know, just wherever you are, be on mission where you live, learn, work, and play. I think that's great. I think that's called the priesthood of all believers. It's a really good thing. And we probably all need to wake up to it and embrace it a lot more than we do. You need to walk into your marketplace and say, this is a mission field. We need to do that more. We all need to do that more. Okay, close parenthesis on that. So that, that's, that's the kind of calling we've talked a lot about. What we haven't talked about very much, but is unique. It's unique to Paul and Barnabas. It's unique to just a very few people in here, but, I, but I'm, I've been doing this in every service because I think this is probably for a few people in every service. We no longer talk. We talk about the general call. Everybody's called, everybody's on mission, every, you know, what career you have, no matter what. What we don't talk about anymore is the special call to leave everything else and to be in full-time vocational ministry. Now, I know that's not for most of you, but all you need to do is look at scripture and look at history and go, it's not for most people, obviously. But I think we don't talk about this at all anymore 
Like, so not that long ago, like 50 years ago, they used to give two altar calls. So if you went to like some Baptist church 50 years ago, not every week, but they would do an altar call, like, hey, are you, you know, do you convicted of your sin? Like, do you need to trust Jesus? You get down here and people would go forward and it was called an altar call. And in a lot of churches, especially at their Sunday night service, which was more of their core and committed and their members, okay, they, they, they did services different back then. They'd have two unique services or one unique service in the morning and then a different, more family service at night. At their family service at night, they would do a second altar call. I don't know if many people know this. And the altar call was to surrender to full-time ministry. Now, I've really never loved the word surrender to it. I've jumped at it. But, but I get what they're saying. And here's what I just, just for a minute, okay, because again, it's, this is just for some people, but I, maybe you just want to, I mean, I don't know, many of you don't know me very well, but like, I, if I can be personal for a second, I love being in full-time ministry. I, I had a moment in my life, I was, I'm 39 now, I was, when I turned 30, 30 was a big birthday for me, okay? It was like a national holiday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it really was. Uh, anyway, um, and, and I was, and it was for various, I was wrestling with a lot of things. I, you know, I'd been doing ministry for seven years. I was in college ministry. I'd only done really one thing, and I was, anyway, I had a lot of questions. We had two kids, like, you know, we'd have three, we had two kids at the time, and I remember I really wrestled, like, with being in full-time ministry. And it was the first time and only time in my life I thought about leaving ministry. In fact, my dad owns a successful business, and my brother, three years younger than me, was leaving his job to go into business with my dad. And my dad said, well, now's the time. If you want to do this too, let's just do it, the three of us together. And if you, if you do it, then we'll structure it this way and we'll buy this building. And if you don't do it, then we'll structure it this way and we'll buy this building. And I said, well, I need a few months to pray about this. And, and, um, and I really wrestled. And I, and I had all the conversation with myself. I'm like, you know what? You know, I'll just be a great elder you know, in a church. And, that's all, and that'd be awesome. I'll be a community group leader and try. that's what I want to do. And, and actually, you know, if I can be half as successful as my dad is, by the time I'm in my 50s, I'll have so much free time. And then when I'm, and then I just like, dude, it's not for me. My name's not on it. And I just, you know, there's something special. I'm not. This is no spiritual elitism. I'm just saying there's something unique and special about being called into full-time ministry. And here's the neat thing about our church: we're now seeing people leave other careers to join our staff. We've had people leave engineer an engineering career to join our staff. We've had people leave a PA career to join our staff. We've had someone high up at Wake Forest University to come join our staff. And those are just three stories I can think of right the second. And all I'm saying is, this is not, this is not uh, send us your applications, please. That's not <laughs> what this is. Okay, that's not at all what this is. But I will say this, I think there's going to be a few people key here, maybe tonight in this room, who you're gonna make a decision at some point to leave what you're doing and uniquely give all of your time and all of your energy to the church and the, and the advancement of the kingdom. It's just unique. And we're gonna need a few of you to do that who have some unique skill sets, who have a kingdom vision if we're gonna go to where we need to go to next. And we have two, two, two practical things on this. One is the residency. The residency is for young people for the most part, right? Most, res it, our, most of our residents are 22, 23 years old. And the kind of thing with the residency is like, well, you're gonna work for like 45 years and you're 22 years old, which means 10 years ago you were 12, okay? What does that mean? Well, you don't know what you want to do, probably, and that's okay. And what, what if you gave two years of your life to just seeing if God might have full-time ministry for you? Because what happens, by the way, is a lot of people, they get later in life, they wish they'd get in full-time ministry, and they feel like there's no inroad, there's no on-ramp. The second thing is, for others of you, I, I think we could have a whole nother, we'll pilot this. Could we have people 
give the first two years after retirement fully to the kingdom of God through Two Cities Church. So I was talking to one couple, and I think they're in their late 40s. And I said, uh, we got pretty close. And I said, guys, when are you going to retire? And like they, you know, some people just know what they're doing. Well, we talked to our financial advisor in 14 and a half years. I thought, okay, you know, carry the seven. I did the math. And I was like, okay, so like, okay, so you're going to retire at 62 years old. It's like a lot of people are going to retire and they're going to have more discretionary income than they know what to do with. And they're going to have more discretionary time than they're going to know what to do with. And their kids aren't even married yet. And their kids, if they're married, aren't even planning on having any kids yet. It's like, okay, what am I going to do? I got all this time. I got all this money. And I'm not even a grandparent. It's like, well, I said to them, I said, guys, what if, like, if this was you today, I said, what if we sent you to London, England for two years? And you were the best two members of Thomas West's small, very needy church plants. And you could live in London and you could help him for two years straight. They were like, I love that idea. I was like, put it on your calendar, 14 and a half years from now. This is what we're doing. <laughs> so that's, that's a word for some of you, but it's a word. I, we, you know, we want to honor both. I think it's something so powerful about the marketplace missionary. And I think there's something very, very special about the person who says, I am going to set aside everything else, live off of the generosity of the church, and give 100% of my time to the mission. Which leads to the final thing. A missional church, it has to be passionate in worship. It has to be spirit-filled. It has to be open-handed, okay, with its leaders and its best people. And finally, it has to have the right expectations. Look here. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, that's John Mark, to assist them. Why Salamis? Now we're going to get practical with your one. Because when they go at first, they don't go far. Where is Salamis? Well, one, it's very close to where they currently are. Number two, it's next to Cyprus. Who's from Cyprus? Barnabas. Where do they go first where they already have influence and access? The whole reason we're doing the genius of the idea of the one from Scripture is you just go to the people that you already have influence and access. If you're a mom or dad and your kids are in the home, you have a unique access and influence that you'll never have again. Don't waste it. Anytime you have a friendship, by definition, that friendship is access and influence. How do you know that you're someone's friend? You have their cell phone number. If you don't have someone's cell phone number, they're not your friend, okay? Because the cell phone basically says, you can have access to me at any time. And it's personal. You don't have to go through anyone else. You to me, anytime. So what happens is they, they, go, they don't go far, but they immediately face both opposition and open doors. Look at verse 6. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as uh, Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So the first thing they meet is false teaching. Well, they meet a false prophet who is a false teacher. As you go out, you're going to, you're going to meet a lot of false and wrong. Maybe think, think less false teaching, think more wrong thinking. Okay? I, I remember there was a young girl in our church. She was a PA, and she was not a Christian, and she was brought by, this is like the first year of the church, she was brought by all these other PAs, physician assistants, uh, from their program. Okay, they were like, and anyway, she comes in, and I find out from one of our PAs who's a Christian, hey, you know, so-and-so wants to meet with you. I'm like, okay. So we meet, I meet with this young girl, and she says, hey, Pastor Kyle, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian, but I don't know if I want to. I was like, well, why? Tell me. She's like, well, I'm afraid if I become a Christian, I won't be a tolerant person anymore. I was like, what? She's like, oh, yeah, all my friends. I mean, that's what they value. Like, you know, the new tolerance, right? I affirm, I approve. I celebrate, 
everything about you and everything you believe, even if it's harmful to you. That's what I do. It's like, okay, we can't do that. So then I had to explain to her, okay? But it was a reminder. People have all of these false beliefs. Now, thankfully, in her case, she understood it. She, not in that conversation, but she ended up giving her life to Christ, baptized in her church, married a great guy, has a kid, is a mom in her church now. Praise the Lord. But you, you realize people have to deal with a lot of wrong thinking. So he, he meets this guy, but then he meets, look at this, verse 7. He was with the proconsul. Look, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, a smart guy, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So I really believe that, that in our church right now, maybe even in this service, some of you are the proconsul, right? You're not a Christian yet, but you're interested in the things of God, and, you, and you're interested in the word of God. You, you come here, and you're like, I don't even know why I'm in church, but this sure is interesting. You know, then you leave, and you're like, I'm never coming back here, and then you come back the next week. Well, we're glad you're here, Okay. Here's what happens. They, how do you know God's at work in someone's life? I don't know all the ways. One of the ways is they're open to the word of God. They're open to spiritual conversations. They're interested in what the Bible says. But every time you find that type of person, you find this guy. Look, but Elimus, and that, this is Bar-Jesus, same, same guy, different name. But Elimus, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This is what always happens. Like you're trying to share the gospel with your friend, right? Or this girl's about to come to faith in Christ, and she's like, ah, my boyfriend doesn't want me to become a Christian. I'm like, I know your boyfriend doesn't want you to become a Christian. Uh-huh. You know, and it's like, or it's like, you know, you go and you're like, you know, you're, you're very interested. You're going to a campus ministry. You're interested in the Bible. You're like, yeah, but you know, every time I go to this class, the professor the whole time always just tells me why Christianity's wrong. It's like, well, that's just how this works. Wherever God starts to work, Satan kind of tries to intervene. Well, here, here's how Paul deals with this, okay? I don't know how you would deal with this, but Saul, who was also called Paul, by the way, at this moment, he's no longer called Saul ever again in Acts. He's now just Paul. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you do when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? You think you're just chill? You think you just lift your hands up and worship? You think you just are, you're relaxed, you're very emotional? Well, look what Paul does. So uh, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Okay, Paul did not read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> Um, okay, the number one sign in the Bible, you can test me on this, but go read the book of Acts. The number one sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Every time, almost every time, if not every time, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The next thing they do is they boldly tell the truth. That's it. So if you're like, I need to have a hard conversation, it's like, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. For some of you, the Holy Spirit needs to help you find your spine. The Holy Spirit should give you both a spring in your step and a spine in your back. <laughs> and saying, okay, because guys, we're just, we're going, this is so hard for some of you based on our culture, based on your personality, based on your temperament, based on your background. You're going to have to have some difficult conversations, but you're always tough on the idea, you're tough on the belief, you're tough on the ideology, you're tough on the sinful behavior, you're tender with the sinner. Paul is actually tender with the sinner, but maybe in a way you wouldn't at first see. Here, I'll show you this. I'll explain it. And now, verse 11, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now look, I wish I could do this. Don't you wish? I wish some, some lady came to the church. She's like, I'm trying to follow the Lord. And my husband's really being a negative influence. I'm like, all right, you bring him over here. You're blind, okay? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> ministry would be so easy. All right, see you in three days. Tell me what you think after that. But here, here's the thing, the reason that I think that, at first it may seem like really, really harsh, but can you think of anybody else in the book of Acts who was blind for three days and it was a blessing? Paul. 
Sometimes Paul's like, all right, I'm gonna have something difficult happen in your life. I don't know, we don't know, we don't get the answer. Is bar Jesus in heaven? Are we gonna meet bar Jesus in heaven? I don't know. We are gonna meet the proconsul in heaven. Look here, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, that's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. I don't have time to talk about this except to say, people, when you get serious about mission, it begins to affect the relationships in your life. John Mark leaves. Most people think he left because he got afraid. And most people think this wasn't a good leaving because in Acts chapter 15, you can read this with your community group. Later, Paul says, I don't want him coming on any more trips with us. And then Barnabas says, he loves the underdog. Barnabas says, well, then he'll go with me. And then Paul says, well, I'm not going with you guys. I'm now taking Silas. It's just a reminder, guys, that these guys were giants, and they had their own relational conflict even as they're trying to take the mission forward. So they move forward, and here's what happens. But when they went to Perga, and they came to Antioch, verse 14, in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, and after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The chapter ends, I don't have time to read it to you. You can read it with your group. The chapter ends with Paul's first written down recorded sermon that we ever have of him. And he preaches what we try to preach here. He preaches the tree and the tomb. He preaches the cross of Christ and the resurrection. He preaches sin, grace, and repentance, and many people believe. Guys, this, our bullseye as we head forward, and we're trying so hard to actually be this and aspirationally be this, we want to be a missional church, which means we have to be a worshiping church, a spirit-filled church. We have to be open-handed as a church. And we have to have, as we see there, the right expectations as we are on mission. What does it look like for you? Because there's no missional church without missional Christians. What does it look like you for you to be committed to worship? Just in a moment, you're going to have a chance to respond. We're going to sing together and bring together, and it's your chance to respond and begin to respond more deeply in worship. What does it mean for you to be spirit-led? Maybe the question is, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you and how is he saying it? What, what does it look like for you just to be open-handed? Just to go, man, God, I don't know. God, I don't know where Two Cities is gonna be in the next three to five years. Get me ready. I mean, that's, Lord, get me ready for the next big thing you want me to be a part of. And let's have the right expectations together. Pastor J.D. Greer, one of my mentors, he says to his church, and I can't say it any better, so I'm just gonna say what he says. He says to his church, I think this is so comprehensive. He says, guys, here's what we want everyone to do. We want them to do something they're good at for the glory of God. And we want them to do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And some of you go, that, that, done, I'm doing it. Yeah, this is what I'm good at. And I'm doing it for the glory of God. And, and actually, thank God, I'm doing it somewhere where it's strategic for the mission of God. For some of you, it's gonna take some changing. You're gonna have to view things differently. Some of you, it may be a transitioning career. Some of you, it may be a call to full-time ministry. Some of you, it may be re-embracing where God has already placed and called you. But as we head forward, we together are committed to having a missionary mindset, not a monastery one. Let's pray. Lord, do it, Lord. It all starts with worship. It, it, that's where it all starts. The church before it sends seeks the face of God. Lord, before we can go out and evangelize, we need to be edified ourselves in worship, Lord. Lord, would you do a great work in and through us, Lord? Would you give us a sense of calling? Would we hold, would we love people deeply, but hold them loosely as we think about what this might mean for relationships as people will go out? 
The Bible talks about people who go out for the sake of his name, Lord. I pray that we would either live sent where we are or we would one day leave and be sent somewhere else so we could more effectively do something we're good at for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.